Lauren. Mike. Lauren, a lot of times in this podcast, we talk about topics that you and I have both reported on, like trends in smartphones, processors, concerns about social media, whatever the heck the metaverse is. Right, right. Although I'm not sure we have fully answered that last one yet. We have not even come close. Mm -mm. But there's a lot going on in the world right now with mm -hmm. Russia invading Ukraine. Indeed. And sometimes we need to put a pause on talking about consumer tech and bring in the experts. That's correct. And we have a lot to unpack today. So let's get to it. Let's do it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I am Michael Calori. I'm a senior editor at Wired. And I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired. As I'm sure you all know, Russia started a war last week by invading the neighboring country of Ukraine. This is a fast-moving story. New information is coming out every minute. So just to timestamp this, we're recording this conversation on Thursday, March 3rd. So in response to Russia's aggression, other nations have ramped up economic sanctions against Russia. One of those sanctions being enforced right now is aimed at Russian banks. Western countries are moving to ban Russia from the financial coordination system known as SWIFT. So what is SWIFT? We know it's a kind of messaging system that banks use to coordinate money transfers around the globe. But to help explain it more, we've brought in Rachel Rizzo, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council who studies NATO and European security matters. Rachel, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on. Of course. So let's start with the basics. Can you please tell us what exactly is SWIFT and why is kicking Russia out of it such a big deal? Sure. So as you mentioned, uh, SWIFT uh, it is formally known as the Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunication. It's a cooperative company under Belgian law that's headquartered in Belgium. Uh, it's controlled by the central banks of the G10 countries, the European Central Bank and the National Bank of Belgium. Now, as you mentioned, SWIFT isn't a bank. It doesn't trade funds. What it is is a messaging system for banks and other financial institutions around the world. It doesn't shuttle any money itself, but it provides instruction messages for for just how to give and receive specific funds, right? So if you've ever received or sent money, you need to provide SWIFT instructions, a SWIFT code, so that banks know where they're sending the money. Without a SWIFT code in place, the money that banks are trying to send won't get where it's supposed to go. So it's been around for about 50 years. It was founded back in 1973, and it's really become an integral part of the flow of global trade. When a bank is a member of SWIFT, their instruction messages are cleared as secure pretty much immediately, so the transactions happen pretty quickly. Um, right now, there's about 11,000 member banks in 200 countries and territories that use it. Um, and in February of 22, the system sent 82 million messages. So the fact that Russia is now being cut off from this system um, more broadly, uh, it, it's a really big deal. Now, it's not every Russian bank, it's seven Russian banks, um, and there are important cutouts like oil and gas. Um, that's something to keep in mind. But this is going to create some major headaches for, for Putin and his regime, which is the ultimate goal here. So when consumers make a financial transaction, are they, in a sense, using the SWIFT system? Like, is their monetary exchange being communicated by the SWIFT system? Or is this more for exchanges that happen from bank to bank? So it's both. Um, it's bank to bank transactions. It's also, you know, person to person transactions. If you've received a, a wire or uh, money from a, 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 you know, payment or something like that, if you've ever provided a SWIFT code for that payment, that is a good example of SWIFT being uh, used in action. Um, so 
it's it's not just the major banks that are using it. It goes all the way down um, into the financial system, which is why it can be so um, economically painful to be cut off from the system. So even if I can't easily send money from one bank account to another, what if I want to use uh, like a popular person-to-person uh, payment app, something like Apple Pay, Google Pay, Venmo, Square Cash, PayPal? Uh, do those apps still work in Russia? Well, de- depending on if those companies have shut down their operations in Russia, the answer is either yes or no. If mm. yes, then no, you, you can't use them. Um, if if Apple, I, I, I'm pretty sure that earlier this week, Apple um, shut down its activities in Russia, which means like Apple Pay, you're not going to be able to use that to, to get funds out of your bank. Um, I think it's important, though, to note there are workarounds to this. Banks, major banks that are cut off from the SWIFT system can use other systems like the SPFS system, which was established by the Russian Central Bank after the 2014 invasion of Crimea, um, or the CIPS network. Uh, this was created by the People's Bank of China. Um, and, and very notably, I think it's it's worth noting that international payments to Gazprom for Russian oil and gas aren't, aren't made via SWIFT. So there's definitely workarounds here, but they're not as secure, um, they're slower, uh, and they cost more. There's also not as much of a reach, right? Um, the Chinese system, for example, is a lot smaller. There's only about 1,300 financial institutions participating, and uh, most of most of them indirectly. And you are correct, Rachel. Earlier this week, we reported that Apple had uh, paused selling its products through uh, various retail channels in Russia and had shut down services or was limiting services such as Apple Pay. Um, so as far as sanctions against Russia go, I'm wondering what level or scale you think this is on, you know, banning Russia from SWIFT. Does, does this have more impact than, say, tech companies pulling their products and services from Russia or a company like Luke Oil speaking out against the invasion of Ukraine? I think it does have bigger implications. Um, And I think to really assess what this means for the Russian financial system, you do have to look at the whole breadth of sanctions that are being implemented. The removal of these major Russian banks from the SWIFT system is a drastic option. But when you listen to Western leaders talk about the effects of the ongoing sanctions regime, you'll notice that the really serious move has been the sanctioning of Russia's central bank. Um, And the reason that I say this is because the Bank of Russia has roughly $640 billion in foreign exchange. It's built up the fourth largest foreign currency reserves in the world. Uh, But a big chunk of that money is not in Russian vaults or financial institutions, right? It's held uh, overseas in banks in, say, Berlin or Tokyo or New York or London. Um, And these reserves are financed in large part through the money Russia earns by selling oil and gas to to Europe and and other customers. So when Russia is experiencing um, economic collapse because of sanctions, um, if the central bank wasn't involved in these sanctions, they could try to prop up the value of the ruble Mm -hmm. by using the reserves to buy up rubles that people are selling. Um, But it can do that only as long as it has access to foreign reserves, right? If it doesn't have access to them, um, Putin's central bank will lose the ability to offset the impact of Western sanctions. And that's what we're seeing happening now. So the mix of all these together is extremely painful for the Russian economy. So what has this done to the ruble? It's basically tanked it in a matter of 
a week. Um, the central bank doubled its interest rate from 9% to 20% to try to um, avoid some of the uh, economic catastrophe that was that was happening to the country. Um, but it's basically worthless against the dollar right now. Um, I was just watching a, a news report a few minutes ago and someone said, what's the difference between the ruble and a dollar? It's a dollar because the, <laughs> the ruble is basically worth worth nothing. So wow. um, the the sanctions are, are working. This is going to be more of a medium to long term strategy, though, right? This is not meant sanctions are not meant to deter Putin at this point in time. I think it's become very clear that he has a goal in mind and he is going to do his utmost to achieve it. The goal here is that these are punitive measures that hopefully um, create enough pain for the Russian economy that he changes course. Now, of course, the sad thing here is that the people who ultimately feel this are, are Russian citizens. So there's always um, a, a, a downfall to this. And that's that's what it is. Right. Uh, there's always collateral damage with moves like these. Absolutely. And, and you know, like I mentioned before, um, you see Russians lining up at the ATM trying to pull their money out, um, worrying that it's it's not going to be worth anything. I mean, a currency that's in free fall, like the ruble, it just can absolutely cripple an economy. It's going to make imports more expensive, which is going to hurt consumers and manufacturers. Production could slow or grind to a halt because companies can't afford raw materials. Um, so it's it's pretty clear at this point why Western officials are trying to crush the ruble as another way to put economic pressure uh, on Russia. Um I will say too, though, at the, at the same time, there are we are already seeing effects on commodity prices around the world. We're seeing, um, you know, higher gas prices in Europe, not because Putin has slowed supplies, but because there there is a fear that he might. Um, we're also seeing, for example, prices of wheat start to go up because Ukraine, as one of the breadbaskets of, of, of Europe, um, it, it, that's affecting those exports. So there are, you know, there's two sides to, to sanctions. And I think we are going to see both of those eventually. Hmm. Proponents of cryptocurrency have said that this could actually be a big moment for crypto. Uh, of course they have. Yes, <laughs> they're, they're often saying this. Um, but because cryptocurrency is decentralized, things like international economic sanctions or swift bans wouldn't affect its transactions. Is that true? And has crypto played a role at all in this last week? So the thing about crypto is that it's um, it's extremely volatile, Right. If, if you follow the prices of, you know, Bitcoin, Cardano, Avalanche, like they they go up and down um, in, in extreme amounts daily. Um, and so if you talk to folks that are you know experts in monetary policy, they will say that they don't see a scenario where cryptocurrency is seen as a uh, viable alternative to say, you know, the dollar or the euro or perhaps the ruble. So I don't think that we're going to get to a point where we're going to be seeing Russian investors crawl to cryptocurrency to to boost up their um, their losses. But again, you know, cryptocurrency is largely unregulated. So I think this is one of those situations where we're sort of building the plane as we fly it. 
All right. Our guest has been Rachel Rizzo, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Rachel, thank you for walking through all of this with us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. We're going to take a quick break and then come back with Ariane Marshall from Wired to talk about gig workers in Ukraine. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is having far-reaching consequences across the world, but the most immediate and dire effects are, of course, happening right there in Ukraine. One group that it's affecting that we want to talk about is gig workers, people who do part-time or freelance work for some of the largest tech companies in the world. So we've brought in Wired staff writer Ariane Marshall, who's been talking to gig workers in Ukraine. Ariane, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So please tell us, how big of a deal is digital gig work in Ukraine? It is a pretty big deal. Um, this is not something I, I really, unfortunately, knew before this week, and this, that's really on me. But um, uh, there's a ton of uh, freelancers, contract workers in Ukraine doing gig-based work. Uh, they are software engineers. They're graphic designers. They're virtual assistants. They work in IT. There's a ton of tech talent there and companies uh, in Europe and the U.S. have worked with them for many, many years now. And it seems like that's really a trend that's only accelerated during the pandemic. And it seems like there are some middlemen who sit between these uh, folks who are working gig jobs and some of the big tech platforms, you know, most people would recognize the names of. So describe this kind of relationship for us. Yeah, these are online uh, platforms that are, you know, a little bit like Uber, a little bit like Lyft or DoorDash, um, but they're for web-based work. Um, in English, uh, the English language people, for folks who speak English, there are platforms like Upwork and Fiverr and Freelancer.com, which is based out of Australia. Um, there's also a ton of Russian language sites and then also ones that are based out of Ukraine as well. Um, but the big thing, the kind of business model here is that these companies charge both people that are hiring freelancers and the freelancers themselves commissions to kind of find each other on their platform. So you pay to use the, the service. So if you're a person who is looking for gig work, a freelancer, and you're on something like Upwork or Fiverr, you're paying the service to be connected with potential clients. Likewise, those clients, let's say it's a company like Facebook or Meta, they would also pay that middleman uh, to connect them with gig workers. Exactly. And generally, the freelancers are paying higher commissions than the clients. So they can pay up to 20% of their uh, work fee to those platforms. And usually for the clients, it's kind of around six, seven, maybe even three or 4%. So gig work is already pretty precarious. You don't have much security or protection, and you're only able to work if you have a stable internet connection and access to technology. I imagine that the Russian invasion has upended those things for people. Definitely. Uh, you know, there are some people who work for American or European or Israeli countries who are employees in Ukraine. And a lot of those people have been working with their companies since even the end of January to come up with evacuation plans and contingencies and to, to help get them out of the country. Um, but freelancers generally don't have those sorts of support from the people that they have contracts with. Um, so just like everyone else in Ukraine, their lives have been very chaotic in the past week or so. 
um, I, I've spoken to a lot of freelancers who have actually maintained an internet connection, have uh, maintained electricity, and they're actually kind of trying to work through it. Um, for some, they tell me it's kind of a way to maintain normalcy, a way, uh, just kind of a way to pass the time. Uh, it's a really terrifying time and it's almost a distraction. But also they tell me, you know, they have to keep uh, working if they're going to get paid. They don't get days off because they're contractors. They don't get sick pay or leave. Uh, so if they want to make money, if they want to pay rent this month, uh, they're going to have to keep working. And some of these issues are things that we've talked about for gig workers here in the United States and particularly here in California. There's been this ongoing conversation about what big tech companies or platforms owe their contractors or gig workers. And that's often in the context of benefits such as health care or retirement fund contributions. In the case of war, though, and, and other serious geopolitical conflicts, what do these platforms owe these gig workers in other countries? I mean, what should they be doing in addition to, you know, issuing their token statements of support? Yeah, that's a great question and a big one that um, I, even freelancers I've talked to have been divided about right now. Some are asking that uh, the platforms get rid of commissions um, for freelancers who are based in Ukraine right now, um, just kind of give them the whole fee that they're owed. Um, others are asking for a kind of quicker turnaround on pay right now, depending on how often you use the platform. There's generally a delay between when you finish a project and when you get paid out for that project. And then some are asking asking for um, these platforms to uh, kick off um, both Russian freelancers and Russian clients from their platform. They're saying, uh, you know what, ultimately you're, you say that you are a neutral platform, but by allowing Russian people to do business on your platform right now, you're not neutral. You're actually taking a stand and that stand is against Ukraine. Um, so it, it kind of really depends on the person you're uh, talking to, but um, I think it goes along with this, this broader theme that we've seen in sort of all parts of the tech world over the past several years, uh, which is what are responsibilities of tech platforms? Uh, how should they be responding to any sort of major event, um, but especially uh, war? Yeah. And if a tech platform decides to allow Russian businesses and um, Russian entities to keep operating on the app, I suppose that makes payment more difficult, right? With the economic sanctions, it's more difficult to do banking with people in banks and companies in Russia. So uh, have you heard anything uh, from your sources in Ukraine about payment slowing down, making it um, you know more difficult for them to actually get paid for the work that they're doing? I haven't heard of uh, anything about having difficulties getting paid in Ukraine. Um, the situation in some specific regions, um, these uh, these contested regions um, that were the you know, excuse for Putin to go into Ukraine uh, last week, um, I believe those are uh, subject to certain sanctions, and it's especially hard for those uh, freelancers to get work right now. But that doesn't apply to all of Ukraine, just some very specific parts of it. But but you do ask, a, a, I think, a question that isn't resolved yet, which is um, how are these uh, companies going to respond to broader sanctions by the U.S., by the EU, by other countries? Uh, it's going to get really complicated out there. What about people who are in Russia? I mean, do we have a sense of whether there is a similar economy there for gig workers who do work for, you know, these sites, Upwork, Fiverr, others? 
Um, and if so, what is their status now with more and more communications being cut off in Russia? No, I, I'm, I'm not exactly sure how uh, those freelancers are, are dealing with their work right now. I do know that um, much like Ukraine, there's also a, a big number of people uh, who do freelance web-based work in uh, Russia, but I, I'm not quite sure how they're faring. I think uh, you know this conflict is, I think, really highlighted for a lot of people, particularly in the US and particularly in the Europe, in Europe, how interconnected the whole world is right now um, in terms of the kind of day-to-day work we do, and especially in the tech sector. Um, so I'd imagine they're feeling a lot of repercussions, uh, but but not quite sure what those are for those people yet. Ariane, thank you for bringing us up to speed on everything happening with gig workers in Ukraine. We're going to take a break right now, and when we come back, we'll do our recommendations. Ariane Marshall, thanks for sticking around for this last part of the show. Please tell us, what is your recommendation for our listeners? Okay, my recommendation is a simple one, and one that I hope I myself will take later, um, because I haven't been doing this lately, and it's a mistake. I recommend taking walks. It is March. It's (laughs) probably starting to get nice where you are, hopefully. Um, I I have been, uh, you know, what's happening in the world is, is... left me stressed and uh, distressed. Um, And there's only so much I can do about it. And sometimes you just got to go outside and take a deep breath of air. And I'm I'm hoping to do that later today. That is such a great recommendation. It's very nice. Do you listen to podcasts or music or do you go like all natural? I think today is going to be an au natural sort of situation. I think I need to unplug my brain from all Mm. the things and just look at the sky. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we call that nat sound. <laughs> nat sound? Well, yeah, like in production, if you create oh. a layer in the background that's nat sound, it's natural sounds just it's, in the background. It's like room tone, but for the outdoors. Exactly. Nice. Yeah. Um, Lauren, what is your recommendation? Well, if Ariane was going to listen to a podcast on her walk today, I would recommend the Maintenance Phase podcast, which is hosted by Aubrey Gordon and Michael Hobbs. It publishes every other Tuesday. It's everywhere you get your podcasts. And this is a fantastic show that examines the wellness industrial complex in a very fun, but also a deeply, deeply curious way. The hosts really go down some rabbit holes and they pick apart fad diets. Um, They call out people who are either scammy in the wellness industry or they're reinforcing status quos around weight and weight loss. And if you're going to get into this, the three episodes I might recommend to start with uh, would be The Great Protein Fiasco, which is from last summer the wellness to QAnon pipeline. <laughs> and just the other day, I'm a little behind the curve on this, but I just listened to the episode titled Illness Influencer Bell Gibson, which is a, just a journey of an episode. <laughs> a lot of twists and turns in that one. How so? What's journeyistic about it? This is a young woman who was really just given these incredible media platforms as someone who was um, had cancer, and had found her way back to health through uh, her diet and other sort of natural or holistic approaches. And, you know, she was a Cosmo fun, fab, fearless female. I'm probably, you know, using too many adjectives there, but um, also at one point Apple gave her a platform um, as part of the Apple Watch launch many years ago. And um, and I don't want to spoil too much, but this woman was not all 
who she seemed to be. <laughs> okay. And just when you think the episode is ending, there's another surprise. Um, it's just really, it's really worth a listen. Excellent. So, and it's, yeah, it's just, um, just a lot to unpack there. So I recommend checking that one out. Maintenance Phase. Maintenance Phase, hosted by Aubrey Gordon and Michael Hobbs. Nice. Mike, what is your recommendation this week? Uh, I'm going to recommend a literary podcast. Uh, it's a show called Our Struggle, mm -hmm. and it is a podcast that is a long series of interviews with a different guest every episode, and the topic is always exactly the same thing, which is the six-volume autobiographical novel, My Struggle, by the Norwegian author Karl Ove Knausgaard. That's a mouthful. Yes. So this is an entire podcast series, like a whole show dedicated just to this one piece of literary autobiographical fiction. So it's a podcast called Our Struggle, mm -hmm. which is about a book called My Struggle, yep. which also happens to be the title of another book. Yes, by Adolf Hitler. Right, mein, which you're mein not Kampf. recommending. I'm not recommending that. Mm -hmm. um, I So, you know... This is the kind of thing where, like, if you were part of the Karl Ove Knausgaard uh, sensation phenomenon, I don't know what you want to call it, but he became like a literary sensation within the last 10 years. And you have either never heard of him or you've heard of him and you've dabbled and you don't like it or you've heard of him and you've dabbled and you've gone straight down the K-hole. Mm -hmm. I went straight down the K-hole about two years ago. I read the the whole book. It's like 3,600 pages, six volumes. Uh, it was definitely a struggle to get through it. But now that I'm done with it, I've been obsessed with this podcast because the podcast, the the, the two hosts, Lauren Teixeira and Drew Oringer, um, they famously like have not read the books and they have guests on who are like literary guests, people who are like Pulitzer Prize winners and people who, um, you know, translate poetry and people who write for uh, like London Review of Books. They have like high profile literature smart people on the show and often they have also not read the books so they just talk about things that are like tangentially related to literature and particularly to the Norwegian man Karl Ove Knausgaard who wrote My Struggle it's very weird it's very meta uh, I love it I just can't get enough of it I just keep listening to episode after episode so if you have at all been k-pilled recently or in your life uh, and you are familiar with that world, then I can highly recommend Our Struggle podcast. So the fact that the hosts have not read this book, this tome, means that they're just asking like the most basic questions, which provides, I imagine, some some element of exposition. Well, I think they've read like most of book one. Okay. And maybe some other things. And like if, the, if you've read book one, you kind of get it. You know, like you kind of get where he's coming from. You understand the broader themes of the Knausgaard oeuvre. <laughs> so they kind of just dive into that. Yeah. I was just going to say, I'll, I can't wait to check it out. But I'm probably not going to. Yeah. But I think some of our audience will. Yes. I've heard you talk about the book before, like yes. quite a bit. And I'm intrigued. I recommend the episode Hot in Translation. Right. Yeah. Good one. That's, that's a good one to dive in on. Ariane, have we convinced you yet to forego Nat Sound in favor of podcasts <laughs> during your walk today or this weekend? Mm, uh, you know, th those are both sound very intriguing, but I think I think my brain needs to be alone today. But maybe later this week. All right. Fair enough. 
Well, it has it has been a very busy couple of weeks for us in the news business, and it's a very serious topic. So, Ariane, thank you for coming on the show and helping us uh, make sense of it. Thanks for having me. And thank you all for listening. If you have feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter. Just check the show notes. This show is produced by Boone Ashworth. We will be back next week. And until then, please stay safe out there. Thank you.